Tamara Murphy is a bass player, a composer, and the leader of Spirograph Studies. She is our very special guest on this episode of the Australian Jazz and Groove Podcast. Great to welcome you back to the Australian Jazz and Group podcast. My name is David Galea. So glad to have your company with us. And it's a pleasure to make this podcast and talk to all the great musicians that are willing to take the time to talk about how they create music, particularly in the jazz and groove scene. So big thank you to all of those that have been a part of the podcast to date. So what do we have for you on this episode? Well, we will talk to bassist and jazz musician Tamara Murphy, and she is one of the many artists that will be featured at this year's Melbourne Jazz Festival. And she has a new recording out which will be released at that festival from her band Spirograph Studies, and the album is entitled Low Lights. And I have to say, I got to hear the launch of the recording at the festival, and it was something special. So good to be there. So you will hear a few tracks of that recording, as well as hear Tamara talk about how she composes for the band, and a heap of other really interesting things she has to say about being a jazz musician in Melbourne. And in particular, look out for a term called gromping. See what she means when she uses that word. We'll also hear music from Melbourne-based band The Yugoslav Attack and their new recording entitled Illusions. We'll hear a track from that. But to get us into listening, let's start with a track from another album that was released at the Melbourne Jazz Festival and a track from Johan Lubers. He is a composer and a conductor of a dectet, and he released an album entitled Divide and Conquer. Now just to quote from Johan's Bandcamp page, it says Divide and Conquer is his fourth album. The album marks the end of an ambitious 10x10x10 project, spanning 10 works in 10 years for 10 players. So it's really interesting and you'll hear that in the arrangement and the composition. So who are the personnel on this recording? Well as we send, Johan is the composer and conductor, Emily Thomas is featured on the flute. Ben Opai is on oboe, Angela Davis on alto sax and clarinet, Michael Wallace on tenor sax and clarinet, Paul Williamson on trumpet, Nicole Dixon on French horn, Andrew Murray on trombone, Andrea Keller on piano, Hiroki Hoshino on bass, and Aaron McCulloch on drums. Really great lineup. So here is the title track from Johan Luber's latest release, as we said, called Divide and Conquer. Thank you. 
So that was Divide and Conquer from Johann Luber's latest release of the same name. And as we mentioned, that was released at the Melbourne Jazz Festival with a whole bunch of other great albums. So many here, we couldn't even play them all. Now, one of those that was featured at the festival and released is from our very special guest for this episode, Tamara Murphy. And as we mentioned in the intro, she has a new recording out with her band Spirograph Studies. So the recording is entitled Low Lights. So let's have a listen to the title track and then we will welcome tomorrow to the podcast. Thank you. 
Tamara Murphy, welcome to the Australian Jazz and Group podcast. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure. And I've been a massive fan of spirograph studies for a little while now. And it's so great to have you on, considering that you've got a new recording coming out. So before we get to that, I just wanted to know, you're a bass player, a composer, an educator. How did you come to play the double bass? Um, I, when I was little, I played piano. I had, uh, it was just a thing that you just did. You just had to learn piano when you were like five or six in, in our family. Uh, and so I played piano when I was a kid, but I didn't really love the way I was taught and the way I, yeah, just the connection with the instrument. I didn't really get it. I think I was quite young too. So the way I was taught to practice wasn't really very healthy or anything. It was just like just play everything lots of times. It wasn't really a great uh, yeah. way in. So I sort of really disliked the whole process. Um, but my uh, I got dragged to a lot of jazz gigs. My mum dated um, a musician and, not, and an entrepreneur. So I got dragged to a lot of jazz gigs when I was from when I was about seven or eight till, you know, yeah, till I till I began to like it. I really hated it when I was young, <laughs> um, and uh, it wasn't like really bad, but it was just like this music's so boring. What's happening? Um, and anyway, when I was at high school, my best friend started playing uh, flute, and at the school I went to, it was a state school, and if you had your own instrument, the lessons were free. And my mum's partner had happened to have a flute, as a lot of saxophone players do. Um, yep. And so I borrowed his flute with his permission, of course, and started learning that. And because I'd, I'd played piano, it just was re- quite easy. I could already read music and yep. it was all the theory was sort of there. So I picked it up pretty fast. And um, so I've been learning that for a few years and I started playing saxophone as well. And then um, wow. I saw a bass, bass at a gig and went, now that looks awesome. That looks like fun. I want to have a go at that. Um, and I started playing bass um, just from, you know, every school needs bass players, you know. Definitely, yeah. So, I, <laughs> yeah, started doing that. So I started playing a few instruments at the same time and I just couldn't maintain them. Like it was a, you know, I was sort of in year nine or something like that and just went, what am I doing? I should just pick one and stick to it. And um, yep. I was the worst at bass, but I liked it the most. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> um, I just thought it was the most fun physically to play. Like I just enjoyed physically playing it. So um, that was the one that I went, I'm going to stick with this one. And, uh, yeah, and that's how I sort of got into it. And because I'd been dragged to so many gigs, you know, I just had seen lots of bass players and lots of people in the Melbourne jazz scene. A lot of them I've known since I was really young. Um, so especially some of the older players, they're people that, would have seen me probably reading a book in a very grumpy mood in a corner at a gig as a kid, you know, and now I'm hopefully lucky enough to do a lot of gigs with these people. So um, they're sort of like family, really. Yeah, that's really cool. So from a really young age, you were like totally immersed in it, it against your own will sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. So It seems like I look back and I think about the if, if my childhood me knew what I was doing now, I'd probably be really bitter like already, <laughs> you know, just because I hated it so much and now I'm doing it. It's, so, it's hilarious, I think. So do you think those years did have sort of like an osmosis type effect on you for later in life at all? Oh, totally. Like you can't listen to that much music and be around those people and and be in those sort of environments without taking in some stuff. And so once I started, I remember when I did start improvising, uh, because I'd come from a classical background, I played with my piano lessons. When I did start improvising, I just had put so much pressure on myself because I knew what it was supposed to sound like and I just couldn't do it. And also Mm. because of the classical thing, I just, I literally thought if I made a mistake, 
that a thunderbolt would strike me down or something. So I just had like this incredible fear with improvising when I first started doing it, you know. So um, there was all this stuff in there. But, yeah, but because I knew how it sounded, it, I think it was quite quick once I got the hang of, you know, some of the mechanics of the bass and I sort of knew what I was going for because I'd heard it so much for sure. Yeah, cool. So did when you started to learn about improvising and constructing bass lines and that, is that when composing started to come into it or does that come in later? Uh, that was definitely when I, oh, actually, I remember doing a bit of songwriting, like picking up a guitar when I was in high school and doing a bit of that teenagery. I'm going to try and write yep. some pop songs that so I can't imagine what, yeah, they were terrible. <laughs> and, um, and, but I remember at uni, like it was just a thing that, uh, sort of unluckily when I was there it was a thing that oh you you play jazz so therefore you must compose and so we were sort okay. of told we had to write tunes but we weren't really given heaps of structure about ways to do it so it was all very intuitive and and I found that really challenging so um so really after uni is when I sort of started getting more tuition and um you know lessons from people and and just help from my friends who are great composers very luckily for me um with all that stuff and just sort of looking into it, you know, you can Google composing for dummies and get all these mm. great things, you know, mm. and all that stuff now. So, um, yeah, but when I first started doing it, I was sort of made to do it at uni really because we just had to. Um, but a bit, you know, these days I actually teach at that uni now and now the, the, it's so wonderfully supported and, you know, Andrea Keller runs the course now who's like one of the most prolific, incredible composers I know <laughs> that's, mm, that I've ever known, you definitely. know. So uh, yep. it's pretty amazing now. Yeah, it's very different. So how do, what's the difference now in the way they approach uh, encouraging students to compose as opposed to back then when you were sort of, sort of told this is what you do how do you get young ones because there's some amazing music coming out from very young people yeah well well I mean having someone like Andrea who's just totally studied it and she's yeah seriously one of the most hard-working uh, musicians and composers that that I know she's incredible really inspiring um you know she and she has really great she's just got all these great methods and all these she just knows all about it so she talks about just developmental techniques that are really well known but she just puts them into really great bite-sized pieces of information for the students so they walk away with this incredible wealth of knowledge that they can go back and keep drawing from years after they they leave and um and it's great because I teach there and I take some ensembles and I talk to students about like oh you've done that class with Andrea great so you mm. must know these things like you should use them you can use them in your soloing you can use them in this like it's just it's you know pure gold <laughs>
So how do you keep your composing fresh then? So because we're about to, we'll talk a bit about the new album soon, but I know sometimes composing, trying to compose myself, I sometimes keep falling back to the same old things. Do you compose on the bass, on the piano? How do you keep it fresh? Yeah, well, when I was younger, um, I ran a my my first band, Murphy's Law, I ran for years and my piano skills uh, are a bit better now than they were back then. <laughs> so um, a lot of the writing I did for that band was often when I was practising, I'd be playing and improvising and I might come up with a riff and then sort of essentially be repeating it and then sing a melody over the top of it and that's how I would initially compose. So yeah. a lot of the Murphy's Law tracks are really ostinato-based because that's just what I could do. Mm. Um and the way I sort of practiced them before I took them to the band was I just played them myself by singing singing over it and trying to play and sing through the changes and soloing over it and just making sure it worked as a vehicle mm. before I sort of wanted to waste anyone's time. I wanted to make sure it was good yep. before I brought it in, you know. Um, but but now actually I do probably more of my writing. I do a little bit on electric bass actually and a bit on double bass, but most of it's on piano now. Okay. Um, probably piano and, and using my voice still. Um, and it's, I've gone through different, um, like different stages with it, but especially with Spirograph with my band, I I tend to, um, I'm trying to be a bit more intuitive with the way I write. Mm. So, um, even though I do, I'm fortunate to know some of these techniques for developing compositions, I don't really employ them unless I'm hitting a brick wall somewhere and then I can go back and use them to sort of get out of the, the lurch or the ditch that I'm in and my writing will work out. You know, you start analysing your work to see what it needs to work out where it needs to go next or something. Um, but it's, it's. I mean, it's certainly nice and easy when there's tunes that just they write themselves. There are some tunes where you're just like, yeah. oh, this is just, why can't it always be this easy? <laughs> you know? Yeah. There's other tunes yeah. I've written that, like one of the ones on the new album is one that I just used heaps of those techniques on. Like there's one that I just started writing this thing and it was quite different to anything I'd written before and I just um, – it was sort of like an exercise in a way for me where I started hitting all these walls and I was like, hmm, okay, let's look at what I've done so far. Oh, great, I can use that idea here and I'll sequence it or I'll do some octave displacement and that then takes me somewhere else and then I'm in a different harmonic world now. So then, oh, cool, and that just gets you onto the next bit, you know. Mm. Um, so it, but it really depends on the tune, I think, because sometimes I write with a really specific idea in mind that, I want it to be this different sort of structure or a different mood. And so depending on what you're trying to do, I think it changes with um, with what tools you need, you know, depending on what the job is. Yeah, That's really interesting to like just explain it like hitting a, a brick wall because, yeah, you do have to do something drastic to get out of it, which then brings you back into that intuitive space. Is that how it is? Like you just employ this thing to just get you out of trouble sort of thing, phone a friend almost compositionally, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as much as possible. It's great if it can be as intuitive as possible all the time, you know. And I think th- that there are there are days like when you're practising uh, really regularly, uh, uh, it, it does get more intuitive just because you're doing it more. It's not like that there's some magic that you're getting that you weren't getting before, but um, just because you're employing those things all the time, they become a bit more effortless and you're naturally doing some of that stuff. It's like technique with like bass technique or whatever. The mm. more you play, the more you can naturally find your ideas because you're getting that ear-to-hand connection better. Um, mm. I think it's the same thing when you're writing for sure. Mm. And I know if there's a period, I go through periods where I don't either don't compose or don't have time to generally and um, or if I'm just busy or touring or something and um, then I go back to it and it's like a week or two where I'm just like, 
or the blowing of the cobwebs out before the good ideas start coming, you know. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you compose on the electric bass, how is it different than when you compose on the double bass? Do you notice different types of tunes coming out when you do that? Yeah, for sure. I feel like they're more guitar-y or something. Yep. Like just the shapes I'd probably play on electric. You can just do more chordal things that are less um, compromised intonation-wise or or mm. you can just play in different areas. Like there's areas of the double bass, you know, like in that, um, you know, the transitional zone, like in between the sort of. I hate that zone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot of bass players do. So in between like the main part and, you know, uh, up in thumb position, there's that middle bit, and um, like in there, it's it's a great sounding part of the instrument, but it's just such mm. a bastard to, to hang out in mm. the whole time. Whereas yeah. on electric, you can just sit there and totally just play it, and it's beautiful. And mm. so things like that, sort of keys, would be different. And um, yeah, you know, it's just a different instrument. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting to talk to bass players that compose on the bass too. Like you can, and then when they go to the piano, I I remember composing on a piano and it was so different than what I normally do on the bass. And it was like, I need to explore this more, but I just can't play the piano real well. So it's really interesting to hear a bass player sort of talk about that. Um, so when it came to Spirograph Studies in your new album, which is called Low Lights, so you've got this beautiful band and I just wanted to run through who they are. So James McLean on drums, Luke Howard on piano and Fran Swin on guitar um, and yourself on double bass. So how did that band come together after Murphy's Law? How did that come about? Um, yeah, so with Murphy's Law that ran for like 14 years and I had a few incarnations along the way as well. And um, I sort of, you know, it had been going for a while and I just was get a feeling not uninspired but like it had run its course a little bit. But I don't think it's totally done, to be honest. I just sort of wanted to put it on the shelf. Yeah. Um, and everyone was just doing other things too. Like a guitarist was was out of action for a while. Um, our, my, our drummer moved to Japan and then Germany. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> hmm, okay. And it was sort of around the time I was like, I'm not sure what to do with this band. And so it's sort of on the shelf. And um, I was really happy not leading a band for a while, like just being a bass mm. player. And it's so easy not leading a band. <laughs> you know, yeah. people just call you for gigs and you get to just turn up and then leave and it's just so easy. You don't have to – you can just play the music and, uh, mm. you know, it's great. Um, but then after a while I started just getting that thing where I was like, oh, I want to play something that I'm not playing and I just didn't know what it was for a long time. Um, and I think after I had a kid too, that was a little uh, nice catalyst for, gosh, I really – there's something I want to do and I just – I don't want to waste any more time. You know, I really want – it's time – as once you've had a kid, you know, you – uh, your time is so precious and it's so mm, there's so much less yep. of it. And so you're like, wow, I've really got to make this count. And um, I feel like my practice has actually been a lot better <laughs> since, <Yep. laughs> since having a kid. It's a much more economic and uh, I don't – all the things that I was avoiding in my playing I've just been addressing. It's been great. should have done this years ago. Um, <laughs> and uh, so with Spirograph it was like um, – it was just a thing where I was just – was like I want to hear something but I don't know what it is and – I just knew I wanted it to be something that was sort of that unfolded gently and really took its time and was quite textural but had compositions. And so it had all these different criteria and I was trying to work out what it sounded like, you know. And so I just started writing a couple of tunes um, with that sort of idea in mind. And every time I started writing I had these super specific drum grooves in my head that were like, mm. like poor James. I in the first <laughs> rehearsals I was like, okay, you've got to do this this tune and this is the feel and I'm like singing this drum feel 
at him and um and there's like there's one in particular like on the first album there's a track called gospel and i'm like it has to have this ticking sound as it goes on and we spent like 10 minutes trying different symbols and sticks to get the right ticking sound <laughs> i was like no it has to be this no it's, it's too low it's too loud it's too like you know and eventually we sort of got this sound like yep that's the one that's the one in my head beautiful that's what it has to be so often with the drums i'm like extremely specific so yeah. um james is an excellent sport putting up with me going he's oh, like why did i join this band <laughs> <laughs> and there's like two tunes where he can just do whatever he wants and it's yep. just like yeah great but no as as of course once you've got that established then of course you yeah. can do whatever you want as well um yeah. but there are I, some very specific things so uh with spirograph that was sort of part of it but um i think maybe it's because i've been have been around the jazz thing for a long time and been playing for 20 years or something professionally and I've just done the, the head solos head thing yeah, yeah a lot yeah, like a yeah. lot I just yeah. went oh I'm really one of the things that I really that makes me sad sometimes is that um is when I feel this is going to sound really bad but it, uh, it's like it's okay so I feel like people <laughs> yeah I'm going to say I'm trying to find the best way to say it but it's where you get like I love it when I, I should go the other way like the fact my favorite bands are bands where you can just hear how much they care about the music. Yep. Um, like the first time I heard the Punch Brothers, I was oh, like, yeah, oh, my yep. gosh, like these guys, like they just they just care so much. Like everything is just immaculate and it's perfect, but it's not mm. so perfect that it's mechanical and soulless. It's mm. actually just so exciting and they just care so much. And after I heard them, um, I, I, was, I was sort of like, you – bastards you've just ruined half the bands <laughs> i used to like you know i thought they were all right but now i've heard this it's just blown everything out of the water um yeah. and and with the whole head solos head thing i think there's a little bit of complacency with the way we arrange our music in jazz mm. world sometimes and of course there's a logic behind it and a reason why it's there um but also i think sometimes it's just there because that's what you do and people don't mm. really think about it a whole lot mm. And, and I like the idea that everything that's in the music needs to be there and is essential and important and um, and you need to be thinking about everything to make sure that that's really the case, I think, or just be aware of it, you know. Mm. So um, with Spirograph I wanted to have this idea that even though it's sort of intricate um, and the idea is it's sort of intricate sounds but we're building larger structures with them. So mm. even though they're small things they sort of end up being, when you step back they end up being big, you know, and, and um, that idea that everything really matters that's being presented and so we don't really do individual solos we do this sort of group uh solo thing but the idea is that it's a group conversation the whole time so um that and the only way that really works is when everyone's listening to everyone all the time and it's it's mm. massive concentration and it can be a bit slow to get going sometimes but it's so fun when you really get the wheels moving um i feel like collectively our influences in the band are just so many like between everyone, you know, um, like I definitely, you know, I've become a massive Bill Frizzell fan over the years. So yeah. that's certainly like a big influence. And the next were a really mm. big influence as well. Like initially I was sort of like, I sort of wanted to be like the next, but we play tunes essentially. Mm. And, you know, maybe yeah. some Bill Frizzell in there or something like that. Um, so uh, that that's sort of part of the idea but then also we've just grown up listening to heaps of rock music and things like yep. that so I feel like yep. the rock folk all of that music sort of there's a bit of that in there um as well and in fact there was a gig that we did um in fact we were supporting Bill Frizzell in maybe 2019 or something wow. when our first album came out 
uh, which was like a dream gig. I was like, oh my God, I have to what get this gig. It's so amazing. <laughs> yeah. Cool. And so that was, that was pretty nice. It was really amazing walking off stage and he's like, that was beautiful. I'm like, oh my God, this is the best <laughs> moment of my life. <laughs> I could die um, now. <laughs> but we'll, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> if you want to sit in with us, that would be really good. Um, the, uh, but, but we we're playing in the big room in the Melbourne Recital Centre, which is just such a great space. And playing that music in a room like that full of people was mm. just such an amazing experience. And there was um, sort of a, a colleague who was there who I spoke to uh, maybe the week after and she came up and went, wow, that gig, it was like um, she'd never heard the band. And she's like, wow, that was like, it was amazing. It was like post-rock and post-jazz. I'm like, yeah. yeah, that's pretty much how I feel. <laughs> like I never, she just said it so succinctly and it was such a great way to put it because that's sort of, I feel like it's totally come from all that stuff and it has all that mm. stuff in it, but it doesn't really feel like jazz to me. But even though there's some of those sounds and some of that language is very present, um, I really feel like it's something that's uh, born from all that stuff, you know. Mm. It's interesting, the Frizzell connection, because when I listened to the album, I didn't think of Frizzell, but there's that definite guitar, piano, bass, drums, instrumentation, which is one of my favourite instrumentations. And just wanted to talk a little bit more about Fran Swin on guitar. Like she has a really strong, unique sound of her own, even though she's in that maybe, let's say, that Frizzell lane, if you were to, to the layman listener, but she doesn't sound like Frizzell, but she's got such a strong voice. Um, and we were talking before this. Could you like talk a little bit more about how you and her connect with the music? Yeah, I mean, she's someone that uh, she's, well, she's actually one of my closest friends as well. So we've known cool. each other for decades as well, which is always amazing if you can make music and have a great time with someone who, yeah. like yeah. everyone in the band are people who are just very dear to me as well. Um you know, and it's important to be able to trust the people you're making music with, I think. Mm. Um, but look, she's someone who is really inspiring in so many ways. One of the big ones for me is she just listens so well and mm. she reminds me uh, <laughs> when I was younger, I remember doing gigs with her and she's like, you're not listening enough. And I was like, <laughs> whoa, okay. Cool. Okay, great. <laughs> yep, you're so right. And I wasn't, you know, and it's so, but, you know, she'll just tell you exactly what's going on. Mm. Um, so completely true. And she still just has massive, you know, her ears are wide open all the time. Um, and one of the, she, I mean, she's amazing. She's checked out so much stuff, but her sounds for me are one of the things that I just completely love. Like she just mm. draws on all these sonic ideas that are huge and because and she's got a great harmonic vocabulary as well. And because she listens so much, she just brings in things that are just like you, you weren't expecting it, but once mm. it's there, it had to be there, you know. Mm. In fact, on this album, this is – we didn't do it with the last one, but with this album we actually used the studio a bit more and on the last track in the album I got her to do um, a couple of extra passes of something just so we could layer up the guitars and make it a bit more rocky and a bit more massive, you know, right. a bit more epic. And uh, and it's so cool. Like yeah. every time I hear the last track, I'm like, oh, we just need three friends <laughs> for the whole time. You know, it's so it's so awesome. Yeah. A band of friends that would be cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and also listening to Luke on piano, Luke Howard. Um, I checked out his trio album after I heard him play with you guys, and I could hear a really. He's, you could tell in the trio he's taking the lead, but it was so nice to hear him play Restrained as well in your band. 
So have you played a lot with Luke in the past and and, and how do you write for someone like that? Um, yeah, it's really interesting. Well, because, again, I've also known Luke for years. He, he was at uni when I was at uni as well. Um, he's in maybe one year different to me. Um, but uh, he he's such a phenomenal musician and I, I played in his trio years ago, like when, when he was in full jazz mode back in the day I probably shouldn't say this he'd probably get angry at me <laughs> these days he doesn't think of himself as being super jazz um and uh so I've known him for a very long time we've played f- for many years as well and um also a dear friend and um yeah I think initially it was a thing where he's used to sort of playing that lead role so when we were first playing it was just like trying to get us all to really think in a less linear way when we're mm. improvising, so more textural sort of ways and and using elements of minimalism, as you said. But in but it's that tricky thing where when we first started playing, it was like trying to explain what I was going for and instead of saying it was, it was just a really hard thing to convey because it was quite esoteric and it, you know, isn't really, it wasn't really a thing. So it's like, how do you, how do you talk about it? How do you do it? And it was sort of like, oh, I want you to do this, but I want you to not do that and not do this and not do that. And James <laughs> is like saying, oh, in a way, like you're saying, just don't think of pink elephants. And now all I can do is think of pink elephants. <laughs> and it was just such a great, <laughs> it was just like, okay, I see what you're saying. All right. I'll give you some instructions rather than banning things to do. Mm. So the whole non-linear thing, um, it's, we certainly do play linear instruments and so it, it's going to be there. But um, initially it was a thing of just trying to get, uh, yeah, just build that rapport as a group which takes time so that we are mm. all listening to each other and giving each other space to be part of the conversation the whole time. Mm. Um, and you know, But also at the end of the day they're all incredible musicians with really developed as musical aesthetics, you know, and I really want to trust, like I trust them all. So I've mm. always said to them, anytime we're performing, like even if we're playing a tune and you know that you're supposed to do this thing at that time, if you're like in your heart of hearts, no, actually the song today needs me to do this, then just mm. disregard everything we'd previously organised and do the thing. Because if we're all listening to each other, it should be fine anyway and mm. it will be really fun and exciting and, you know, I want you to all be yourselves, you know. Um, I mean, I think it's pretty much the smartest thing I've ever done is you, when you're putting together a band is you just hire people that are much better than you yeah, um, right. and, and let them do their thing, you know, and it's, um, yep. yeah, I mean, they're, they're all so great. I think you need to, uh, I don't know if you've written a tune called Pink Elephants, but that's a pretty good title to uh, <laughs> write a tune for. Can you think back to a time when you were trying to get that sound and it all of a sudden it clicked as a band? When they, when you feel um, like everyone got it, you know? yeah, I, I feel like it came incrementally. Like in the first times we we're playing together, and I was getting everyone together, going, "I've got this idea for a band. Would you guys mind being in it? Um, this is sort of the idea. Let's just get together and have some some jams and see how we feel about it. Here's some tunes that we can start with, um, and and we'd play, and then I go, "Okay, th- that was cool, but I reckon here, this is what." happened and what we need to do is probably this you know and so we'd like try it again and try it again so it was a bit of just trying to you know and again just trying to convey that idea that was in my head and and after I think the first rehearsal the second rehearsal um I think it again might have been James or Luke or someone was saying look the thing that you want us to do is something that just comes with you know, years of playing together. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> but that's what I want. Like I want yeah. it to sound like I want it to be a band, you know. And so we don't um, actually do a gig. Like if everyone can't do the gig, we don't do the gig. 
Yeah, cool. Is part of that rapport, is part of I want it to sound like a band. And mm. um, but I mean that being said, we had a big tour in uh 2019 to support the first album. We did like 14 gigs or something around Australia and New Zealand and um, which was awesome because when you live in Melbourne and you play a band in a band like this, you d- we do maybe two gigs a year or three gigs yeah, or something. That's right. You know, it's yeah. a small town and we play sort of art, rock, music, or whatever it is. And uh, there's not really <laughs> you don't you don't get a thousand gigs. Um, so doing a tour was great because we just got to play a lot. And Luke was half in Europe and half here. And I was like, oh, we need to do these gigs. And um, so Sam Kivers did half the tour with us as well. Oh yeah, yep. Um, and so, and he's amazing. So we sort of worked up some stuff. And I think because the rest of us were already doing the thing and we had a recording and we had some support materials to help him sort of get what is what we do anyway. And he's, again, incredible musician, amazing listener. Mm. Mm. Um, he sort of fit in really well. And it was interesting when he was doing it how the band changed too, you know, yep. which was natural and, and great. Um, so uh, when we recorded Low Lights at the end of that year, um, I wanted to have both Sam and Luke on some tracks because um, they both just played with us so much that year. So mm. so Sam's actually on a few tracks of Low Lights as well. Yeah, cool. So you really do have that rock and roll edge where it's a band as opposed to sort of like a jazz uni thing where it's you'd come in with a depth or you read a chart. or So that rock band mentality, I, and I can hear that in the recording. I can hear that in the sound of your of your album, So, which is, you know, Totally cool. I think it jazz needs a bit more of that. If we can call it jazz, you know, let's. I think we need mm. more of that. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, when you think about all the favorite, for me, all of those um sort of landmark recordings, you know, they're bands. They and mm. it's it's such a hard thing here. I think because, and I think in Miles, I've got my Miles T-shirt on actually. I think in uh, <laughs> sure. in the Miles in his autobiography, you know, he was saying that the only way he could get all the guys to play together regularly was to just take them on the road because they're all so busy, Mm. Um, you know, and so that's how he did it. He just literally grabbed them and toured around with them and took them away. Um, And so I think there's there's a reason that that's a thing, you know, Um, and Mm. I think when you live in a a town where we're all just trying to make a living, everyone just does all the gigs and you say yes to everything and... Mm. um, you know, there is a lot of chopping and changing and so it is a bit hard to develop a band sound if you're doing mm. that all the time.
So now that you bring a tune to the band and you've got that sound, do you find you don't have to explain it as much? You, f- you feel like everyone sort of drops into their role, so to speak? Yeah, totally. Like everyone gets it. Well, um, <laughs> I should explain. So when we were, when I was first trying to explain it, that we don't really do solos but we're all playing the whole time, I think it was in that very first time we got together uh, with the Pink Elephants that uh, um, <laughs> I was like sort of like we were playing together. We're sort of all, you know, comping but we're sort of listening to each other and letting something grow from there. And and um, Fran was like, oh, so it's like a, a group comp sort of thing. I'm like, yeah, sort of. And then then someone went, oh, a grump was like the word, like <laughs> the shortening of that. And so that's what we've been colloquially calling it amongst ourselves when you don't solo. It's we're just grumping, we're doing this thing. Um, so that's sort of <laughs> that is, yeah, that's sort of the that's what we do basically yeah. um in every tune. So it's just sort of a thing. Like th- there is actually on the new album, uh, we there's one song that's quite different to all the others. It's this little waltz, and Sam Kiever's actually does a solo on it. And it's just like it's but it just sort of suited suited the tune and what it needed, mm. you know. But apart from that, it's pretty much grumping all the way. Grumping, yeah. yeah. <laughs> awesome. So coming up, you're, you guys have got a gig at the Melbourne International Jazz Festival. That's right. That's where you're yeah. releasing the album. The new album's being released there. Yeah. Well, we, it was actually ready earlier this year, but uh, we were trying to find a way to release it. And um, and then I heard they were booking the festival. So, I, you know, went, we've got an album if you want us to do a CD or an album launch. We, we're not doing CDs. We've done vinyl this time. Yeah, and cool. um and uh yeah and they were like keen and they went it's in october i'm like okay we can wait till then we'll do it in october no worries and and of course everything's been uh gone pear-shaped as it has for Mm. everyone all over the planet so um yeah so it's now in december but it's already out like we you know the release date when you're releasing things digitally it's you just set it up and it runs and Mm. then it's out in the world so uh yeah so it's already out which is sort of in a way great because even though everything's been all crazy it's just nice to have it out in the world and um Mm. and i'm really happy with the album actually so it's sort of a relief to have it out have you noticed in this sort of pandemic that there is a lot of music that's come out have you noticed that yourself (laughs) yes yeah well it's funny actually because i'm doing a fill-in i'm doing a couple of sort of fill-in gigs around our gig at the festival for other people's bands and um, the night before our launch gig, Luke Howard is launching his trio album and the one um, that I'm playing for is Johannes Luber's uh, band. I think it's a Dectet on the Sunday night and that's an album launch as well. Wow. So I just feel like it's just all album launches all the yep. way through the, the festival because, I mean, everyone's, you know, been you – know, people haven't have been a bit idle but not that idle. You know, musicians, you can't – uh, you can't keep them down. So um, even though we haven't been able to play, everyone's still creating. So I think mm. there's a lot of, you know, I reckon if things aren't coming out now in the next year, the floodgates are going to be opened and there's going to be a lot of new exciting things happening. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So if people want to get the album, uh, Low Lights, how can they do that? Have you got a website? Yeah, we've got um, a Bandcamp page, so the Spirograph Studies Bandcamp. Um, you can get onto my website as well, tamaramurphy.com, and there's links to all the stuff there. Um, we've actually, I think Northside Records have got a few copies as well at the moment. Nice. Um, yeah, but um, at the moment it's all just Bandcamp, so, and it's all just digital. I mean, I think it's on Apple and all the digital places as well um mm. but Bandcamp's the best because we get more money <laughs> if you get it that way Definitely. um yep. and also the vinyl is uh, available there as well yeah awesome well thanks so much tomorrow for uh, having a chat with us and good luck with the album launch 
thanks heaps stopping by and having a chat and all the best with the new album. Thank you so much, David. Thanks for the chat. It's been super fun.
So that was Another Bright Light, taken from the latest Spirograph Studies release entitled Low Lights. And how good was it to get an insight into the band from Tamara? Big thank you to her for joining us on the podcast. Well, we've come to our last track for this episode, and it's from Melbourne guitarist James Wiley. Now, James got in touch and kindly put us on to his latest release from his band, The Yugoslav Attack. The recording is called Illusions, and as the liner notes points out, it was produced by James Wiley himself, also along with the great James Sherlock. Now, who is on this recording? Well, it's James Wiley on guitar, Hector Harley on tenor saxophone, Flora Carbo on alto saxophone, Mark Fitzgibbon on piano, Robbie Finch on double bass, Luke Anderson on drums, and Bede Ford Gaddies on trumpet. So here is less of a sense from the Yugoslav attack.
So that was less of a sense taken from the Yugoslav attack on their latest release entitled Illusions. So that's another episode in the bag, folks. So good to have had you along. And special thank you must go to Tamara Murphy for taking the time to talk to us about the new Spirograph Studies release, Low Lights. And as we say every show, if you would like to support these artists and I encourage you to do so, please look them up online. Go to Bandcamp and be sure to go and buy their music. That's the best way that you can show your support to these artists. Now, all the music that we have played on this episode is available to purchase at Bandcamp, and that is the best site, as the artists will get the most income out of that site than any others. Now, if you would like to get in touch and put us onto some new music, or you have some of your own music you would like played on the podcast, please email to Australian Jazz and Groove Podcast at gmail.com. So, Looking forward, who do we have coming up on the next episode? Well, we will be talking to Anton Delica about his new recording, The Offering, out on Earshift Recordings. So that's coming up as the first episode in 2022. So for now, make sure you have a safe holiday season, go out and buy some music, and we will see you next time on the Australian Jazz and Groove Podcast. <laughs>